You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9 is where we'll be anchoring for the next four services. And I would encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, to reach in front of you in the seats. Find Isaiah 9 on page 571. This is our season of Advent, and for some of you, you acknowledge this to be one of your favorite traditions. And we at Ascend do not turn our backs on traditions, but we do want to put them in their right place. Tradition is never intended to be elevated to a place where we do tradition because we've always done it. It's not the point of tradition. The point of tradition is to remind us when we follow it to understand why we do it. And that's why we do Advent here at Ascend. It is the why behind Advent. The word Advent comes from the Latin term Adventus, which means arrival. And so the Advent season is an opportunity for us to reflect on and anticipate arrivals. We reflect on the first arrival of Jesus Christ that began in Bethlehem and all of the events that we celebrate on Christmas Day. It continues, though, through his life and his message and his ministry, culminating in the capital city of Jerusalem where he gave his life on the Roman cross and then rose victoriously from the grave three days later. We reflect on that arrival and we celebrate it through the season of Advent, but in doing so, it actually prepares our minds and hearts to anticipate his second arrival. And his second arrival will take place here on this earth. It will be an arrival that declares ultimate victory, no more wars to be fought, no more victory to be gained, and it will actually set up a new capital city, which is the new Jerusalem, the entire cosmos, the entire new heavens and new earth where God's people will dwell with him and he with them. So over the next four services, that's what we intend to accomplish, is to plant and water seeds of reflecting on his first arrival and anticipating his second arrival, so that as you go to all your Christmas parties, as you anticipate hosting or traveling during Christmas, as you get all of those gifts that you have on your gift lists or that others have, that we will be able to center our minds on the hope that is extended to us through the advent of Jesus Christ. So we're going to be anchoring in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. And as I read this, perhaps you will hear in the background, in your minds, the chorus of Handel's Messiah. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So the four services will focus on each of these four names, beginning this week with Wonderful Counselor. And that whole idea of someone to counsel us who is wonderful is something that hopefully will get us to a place of hope so that no matter what we experience in our lives, past, present, or future, no matter what extremes may be a part of that, we can have true hope found in the wonderful counselor. Look at the big idea in your notes. The child promised to Israel is the hope we have for today and the extremes that we may face 
in the future, and we have plenty of extremes that we can draw from, don't we? I mean, whether it's our past, whether it's the headlines of today, or whether it's the trajectory that not only our country, but our world seems to be on, we will experience extremes in our lives. And the wonderful counselor promised to Israel is the child who offers that hope, no matter what extremes we face. The outline in your notes is really one long sentence of hope. It's one long sentence of hope that for us, we need to actually back up and understand the context of Isaiah. So it begins with, number one, even when we contribute to the extremes. Even when we contribute to the extremes. We we don't just dive into Isaiah 9-6. If you have been at Ascend for a while, I hope this is a review. If you haven't been to Ascend for a while, maybe you were at the women's event last week and you decided, or last night, you decided I'll come to the service this morning. We're glad you're here. Maybe you're here for the baptisms. No matter where you find ourselves in your understanding of this book, we want to make sure we're all on the same page of understanding that you don't just study the Bible looking at one verse and one verse alone. That verse is found within a context. It's not only the context of the verses before and after. It's not only the context of the chapter in which we find that verse. It's not only the context in the book in which we find this verse. It's actually the context of the entire Bible. And so what we do when we study a verse of Scripture is we analyze the words, we analyze the history, but we also analyze it understanding that it sits in a bigger story. And that bigger story continues to have the light turned on more bright and more clearly as we go through the New Testament. And so we bring all of that to Isaiah 9, and we have to turn back to Isaiah 6 to begin to understand the extreme. Go back to Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, the Lord says to Isaiah, and then by extension to the nation of Judah, in verse 9 it says, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, this is odd. It's odd that the God of Israel would say to Israel, keep on seeing, but do not see. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. That seems odd. This is Israel's God. And in fact, look down at verse 13. And though a tenth remain in it, this is Israel, it will be burned again. What? It goes on to say like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. This is God saying to his people, to Israel, this is going to happen to you. There will be a time where you will be able to see, but you will not be able to see. There will be a time when you will be able to hear, but you will not be able to understand. And in fact, I am going to reduce you to a stump, God is saying to his people. That's pretty extreme, isn't it? Now, when I talk about extremes, and by the way, I'm getting, this month is going to be tough for me because I'm getting cut off here. (laughs) So I'll try to to live within those contexts, but just know I'm, I'm crippled up here a little bit. But, but just listen to this. When we think about extremes, what, what I'm trying to relate to us is it's those moments in our lives when things don't work out as we would expect. 
It's those moments in our lives where we begin to question everything. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one that you thought would be here forever. Maybe it's legislation in our government that you think, wait, if we are supposed to be built on Christian principles, why in the world are we even considering this legislation? Maybe it's you lose your job. Whatever it is, it's an extreme that moves you beyond the the comforts of present routine and causes you to question everything. My first experience with that was back in my elementary days. I played baseball, and I, I was pretty decent in those days. Not so decent that I would have a major league career. I'm a pastor now. That just tells you how great I was. But I was decent in my elementary days. And there was one moment in particular that I was sitting in the stands watching my teammates play against our arch rival. That's a game you would want to participate in as a baseball player. And as I thought about my life context, I didn't have any broken bones. I wasn't sick. I was perfectly capable of playing in that game. And as I sat there and I saw my teammates play against our arch rival, that was one of those moments where I began to question things. Because up to that point, if we were playing against my arch rival and if I had the ability to play, I would have been on the field. I would have been contributing to our team. But that was a moment in my elementary days that all of a sudden life didn't just make sense. I was beginning to question everything. And that's where Israel found itself. But part of the story that I didn't share with you is that I was in the stands because of my own sin. I was in the stands because I had crossed the line of behavior that my parents were not able to put up with, and rightly so. And the punishment had to fit the crime I contributed to my extreme, and that's where Israel found themselves. In fact, go back to Isaiah chapter 2. And if you found Isaiah 2, go back to Isaiah 1. That's actually where I wanted you to go. Look at verse 3. The imagery is fascinating. The Lord says, The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. And this is true, whether or not you're a farmer or whether or not you're familiar with animals. We, we have a little dog, Finley, and if you've ever been over to our house, you know that Finley loves to bark at you and threaten you like she's going to bite your head off. But what's amazing is when one of our kids or Sally or I come down, then Finley just turns into this little ball of fluffiness. Animals typically know their master. Animals typically know their comfort and their surroundings, and they respond appropriately. But look at what verse 3 says. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. God's people, verse 4, are a sinful nation. Why? Verse 4, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel and are utterly estranged. These are extremes. And Israel had contributed. What's interesting, as Isaiah continues, chapter 2 says that nations will be toppled like trees and so will Judah. Judah. It continues to say that chapter 3, Judah will be destroyed 
like the other nations. Chapter 5, there's an imagery of a, a vine and a vine dresser, and it says that the vine dresser will actually remove the hedge of protection from the vine to allow the enemy to come in and to tear up the vine. This is what is in Israel's future. This is extreme. And what's interesting about this, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, is that for generations, the covenant love of God had been faithful. For generations, the covenant love of God had been gracious. Yes, Israel had sinned, but God had extended grace. God continued to raise up prophets. God continued to raise up priests. God continued to give them kings to direct them toward righteousness. He gave them all the resources. And so like elementary Jeff, everything was continuing along. Yes, there were bumps along the way, but but now God is saying there's an extreme coming. And this will shake you at your foundation. It will shake you at your roots. You will begin to question everything. And friends, I think we can relate to this, can't we? There is no guarantee of tomorrow. There's no guarantee that what we experienced decades ago in our country will continue on forever. Just look around you and see wars and rumors of wars and you begin to understand this is the way the world works. And if we begin, because we live in America, to to live in this comfortable place that is a lie, that somehow we can control the future, that somehow we can deny the future, that somehow the, the smoke that is lingering after the candle is burned out, that the world offers us will somehow satisfy, will somehow deliver, it's all a lie. And if we cannot get to that place, God will shake us at some point. And so we begin by understanding the context of Isaiah 9, 6 to recognize that even in these extremes, even in the extremes we contribute to, number two, God has not forgotten. Even in the extremes, even the ones that we contribute to, God has not forgotten. And there's been glimpses of hope in these chapters leading up to chapter 9. In fact, you can go back to now, chapter 2 of Isaiah. And you can see in verse 1, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So this is a word that is intended to the southern tribes of Israel. It shall come to pass, verse 2, in the latter days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains. Now, now in the ancient context, the higher a mountain, the more divine it was, the more uh, accepted to the gods it was, the more uh, special the place was. And so what God is saying is that someday the house of the Lord is going to be the highest of mountains. Nothing will compete for it. It says, verse 3, many peoples shall come and say from the nations, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall come forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And so you see these glimpses of hope as judgment is predicted and prophesied for Judah. Verse 4 of chapter 2 says that there will not be wars. People will beat their swords into plowshares. That's what the imagery means. There will be a time at the end of verse 13 where the stump will actually produce something. Now, this is rich, and I hope you can follow me on this. 
Genesis 3.15 is one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. It finds itself in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve had sinned. And now, all of a sudden, God's complete creation is fractured. And so as God is handing out the punishments, as God is handing out the judgments to Adam, to Eve, to the serpent, to the earth, he gives the the, the humanity a promise, and that promise is found in Genesis 3.15. And it says that there will be a seed of the woman, a zarah of the woman, an offspring of the woman who will bruise the serpent's head, who will actually destroy evil, who will actually destroy Satan, and will be the one who will bring about reconciliation of the complete creation. That is the verse that provides the promise that the rest of Scripture builds upon. Now, why that's important is because of Isaiah 6. Would you look over here and would you follow this and circle it, underline it, because this is not only important for the topic of Jesus, this is important for understanding how Israel, ethnic Israel, fits into God's plan. It says in verse 13 of chapter 6, though a tenth remain in it, this is Israel, it will be burned again. So the progression of Isaiah 6 is that God's judgment is going to play out on his ethnic people, on Israel, and they are going to be judged and reduced, judged and reduced, judged and reduced from the 10th down to a stump. Do you see it there in the text? But, But Isaiah... God, through Isaiah, is going to tie us back to Genesis 3.15. Look at what it says at the end of verse 13. The holy seed is its stump. Some of your Bibles will have a footnote there. The footnote says offspring, doesn't it? It's the Hebrew term zarah. And what God is doing through Isaiah is he's actually giving another glimpse of hope that informs us, but not until we get to the New Testament with the full light of revelation on what is going on in God's redemptive plan. God's redemptive plan is ultimately not about ethnic Israel. It's the offspring, the Zerah, that comes through ethnic Israel. And that offspring, beloved, in Galatians chapter 3 is Christ. Isn't that awesome? That in the midst of all of this, in the midst of judgment, in the midst of ethnic Israel being reduced, 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 there is a glimmer of hope that God has not forgotten. And that glimmer of hope is the offspring that God promised from Genesis 3.15, who we know because of the New Testament is none other than Christ. But here's another example of how God has not forgotten. Over in Genesis, or Isaiah chapter 7, we see that Isaiah moves from prophecy and talking symbolically about the future to actually giving a historical event that illustrates this prophecy. So Isaiah 7, we are introduced to the king of David, the offspring of David named Ahaz. You can see it in verse 1. And Ahaz, the king of Judah, is threatened by an attack coming from the north. The attack is coming from not just Syria, but also the northern tribes of Israel. And they are destroying city after city after city, and no one can stop them. 
It's interesting that it says that the house of David, which I think is, again, Isaiah tying back to the Old Testament, tying back to God's promise, specifically here, 2 Samuel chapter 7. He's wanting the reader to understand that this threat from the north was threatening God's character. Because in their minds, if this attack from the north succeeded, then God's covenant would be broken, and therefore God's character would be exposed as false. And so Israel in the south and the king Ahaz are recognizing that God's character is being threatened, and it seems like there is no hope. So prophet Isaiah comes along. And God says to Isaiah, Encourage Ahaz to ask for a sign because I have not forgotten. And Isaiah says to King Ahaz, ask for a sign. It can be whatever you want. It can be as high as heaven. It can be as low as the earth. Ask for whatever you want. And King Ahaz is given the opportunity, beloved, right here as you are and I am today. And that is trust in God and not in the horizontal. He is given that opportunity and in tragic reality, he chooses not to trust in God. He says, I I will not ask for a sign. So God says, well, I'm going to provide a sign. Verse 14, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, now what's interesting about this, as the chapter unfolds and as we get to chapter 8, it isn't that she's going to call this child literally Emmanuel. What she's going to do is, is she's going to declare that God is with us because of this child and because of God fulfilling his promises. So here's what I mean by that. When you look at what Isaiah unpacks in Isaiah 7, you start to see that this child's life is going to serve as a timeline. And that as he grows in those first couple years of his life, that's actually going to be the timeline of this enemy from the north being defeated. And again, it's impossible because this, this, this enemy from the north is defeating city after city and destroying powerful army after powerful army. And no one can stop them, but God says, I will. And he says, in fact, here's the deposit on the promise. There's going to be a child who is born, and in that child's lifetime, that timeline will actually be the timeline of me fulfilling my promise. So then you get to chapter 8. It's interesting that chapter 8 immediately follows chapter 7, isn't it? And you see a child is born. You see a child is born, given a different literal name, Mehershal Hashbaz, which by the way, it's the longest name in the Bible. So if you want to impress people at your Christmas parties, there you go, Mehershal Hashbaz. The child's name is literally Mehershal Hashbaz, but look at this. He then begins to parallel Isaiah 7 and say, this child once again is going to be the timeline for me fulfilling my promises. And that as this child gets, gets older in those young ages, one and two years old, Syria and Israel from the north are going to be defeated and they're going to be reduced to a smoldering stump. And when this happens, you, Judah, will declare, look at the end of verse 10, God is with us. That's Emmanuel. This is awesome. God has not forgotten, even though there are extremes that Judah has contributed to. 
He has promised that he's going to continue to advance the promise of Genesis 3.15. He's going to do that through the nation of Israel, through Christ. And he's giving a down payment on that by defeating Judah's enemy in Isaiah's day. God has not forgotten. When I was a bat boy for my dad's team in Fort Myers, Florida, the Royals affiliate, I met an umpire and we became friends. And through one of our discussions, I let him know that I I really wanted a a major league helmet. That was like my, my wish. And he let me know that he actually had a friend that could make that happen. But what he wanted from me is to provide some gear from the Royals, kind of a trade type of thing. And so as a a young kid, as a young bat boy, every time that umpire would come in, I I would be looking. Where's my helmet? Didn't come. Didn't come. Didn't come. And I was convinced by the end of the season that he had forgotten. Well, the last series of the year, we actually, by God's providence, had my friend, the umpire. And he visited me before the game, and he had a bag in his hands, and I was so excited. I was so focused on my helmet that I didn't deliver to him the Royals gear that I had promised. And so I thought at that point that he would just show it to me and take it with him because I had not fulfilled my end of the bargain. But the fact is, it was a helmet, and he gave that to me even though I had failed. And that illustration is what I hope this unpacking of Isaiah 1 through 8 has reminded us about God himself. God will always be faithful to his character. Even when we don't deliver on our side, he will always be faithful to his character. And for his people who have placed their faith in him, their true faith in him, and received salvation through Christ, he will always be faithful to his character despite our responses. And that is encouraging, isn't it? It's hope-filled. Even in the extremes, God has not forgotten. Number three, but our expectations must bend to his. Our expectations must bend to his. So again, there's an extreme coming for Judah. There's an extreme coming that they themselves have contributed to. And yet God has not forgotten. He will actually protect them. Yes, he will also send them to exile, but there's such a bigger picture going on here. It's not ultimately about ethnic Israel. It's so much bigger than that. And that's really what verses 1 through 6 are illustrating for Israel. The reality is Assyria will attack. That is who Ahaz went to to trust in. In fact, you can write down 2 Kings chapter 16. 2 Kings 16 will let you see where Ahaz trusted in Assyria. Look back at chapter 8. It says in verse 21, They, Assyria, will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. 
In the former time, he brought contempt into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. What is this saying? It's saying that Assyria will be successful. Assyria will come down from the north and it will begin to pick off tribal lands of Zebulun and Naphtali. And it's going to get bad. It's going to get dark. It's going to get distressed. The people of God will be in anguish. This is literally and truly going to happen. But you begin to see the process of hope. As God says, there will be no gloom. Verse 2, the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. God promises in verse 3 that he will increase their joy. He promises in verse 4 that the yoke, the staff, the rod of the oppressor will be broken. And he reminds them in verse 4, it will be just like the day of Midian, which, by the way, the day of Midian is found in Judges 7 through 8 with Gideon. All of these are intended to be shadows. All, in, all of these are intended to be patterns that reflect on how God deals with his people, on God, how God fulfills his character. Pattern, substance. Shadow, substance. And so what God is saying is that there will be a day in the future where there will be another pattern. There will be another shadow, ultimately pointing to the substance of God's final destination. Isaiah's audience must have felt at that point, here it comes. Here's the promise. This is it. This is what we've expected. These are our expectations that once again, God will sweep in, he will save the day, he will restore us, and everything will come back to normal. After all, chapter 2, verse 2 said, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established, right? Chapter 2, the nations will be subject. Verse 6, there will be a child of David who will be born, who will be king. The government will be on his shoulder. These are the seeds of expectation that are planted. But listen, it will be watered for generations, but the weeds of self-interest will choke it out. The the weeds of self-expectations will choke out the understanding of God's promise. This is so important, beloved. This is why when the son was actually born in Bethlehem and lived his life, the people of God who had received this promise killed him. Why? Here's a quote. The mystery of the people of God is that it is not ultimately identified by ethnicity, but instead faith in the true Israel, Emmanuel. The child to be born many years from then will, be, will rightfully embody the names of chapter 9 and verse 6. Beloved, if you, if you can get this, I think you can understand how the Old and New Testament fit together. I think this actually becomes lenses for you through which you can look at the current modern day headlines and be able to understand what God is doing. This is how you can look at people that might be in your families who are really into the Old Testament, who might subscribe to something called Hebraic roots and might really struggle with being able to understand how the Old Testament Torah fits with the New Testament law of Christ. This is crucial. This is crucial. 
And that is that the mystery of the people of God is not ultimately identified by ethnicity. It's faith in the true Israel, Emmanuel, God with us. This is what was so hard for the Jews. The Jews read in Isaiah, Zion and Jerusalem and the house of God, and they only thought with ethnic lenses. They, they read in Jeremiah that people will come to the temple in Jerusalem, which, by the way, do, do you not understand? Or, or oh, That's a bad way to word it. Here's how I wrestle with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah when it talks about the future. There will be an altar. There will be a temple. There will be sacrifices. Doesn't that sound weird when you think that the New Testament says that Jesus is the Passover sacrifice? So, so how do we reconcile that? How does, how does Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and, and Zechariah say that there will be a future day when the nations will come to the temple in Jerusalem and they will sacrifice and their festivals will be reinstituted when in the New Testament it says Jesus is the fulfillment of that? When in the New Testament, Galatians 3 says that in Christ there is neither Jew nor, nor Greek. There is not a distinction to be made. And I think the answer for that is when you look at the prophets, how would they describe true worship? In their minds, when they think of there will be true worship that will take place, they would have only been able to use vocabulary like Jerusalem, temple, sacrifice. That's all they had at their disposal. That's why when Jesus came to the woman at the well in John 4 and said, it's not about where you worship, it's not ultimately about this mountain or that mountain, it's about me, Christ. So what you're seeing here is that we, like the Jews, need to bend our will and our expectations to Christ. And when we do, it opens up a whole new perspective. Maybe not new, but clear perspective. Here's another quote. When our mission is God's will to be done, we are in a place to experience true satisfaction. You know, when we say at the end of a prayer, in Jesus' name, what that literally means is, to the degree that my requests and my prayers align with your will, may it be so. And to the degree that it doesn't, change my will. That's what in Jesus' name, amen, means. And so when our mission is that the Lord's will be done, when when we are so passionate about that, that even if he ordains that we have cancer, even if he ordains that we lose our jobs, even if he ordains that he takes away our tax exemption, that we are in a place that we say, may it be so, Lord, your will be done. I think this is ultimately what Isaiah's prophecy is steering Israel toward, but they had the weeds of self-expectation. And see, if we can lay aside our self-expectation and pick up his will be done, then I think we're in a position like David in Psalm 1611, where we can say, you have made known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. I will define pleasure. I will define fullness of joy as you define them. That's a great place to be. I'm not perfectly there yet. So even in extremes, God has not forgotten, but our expectations must bend to his, number four, and he will counsel us to understanding. So now we arrive at Isaiah 9, 6. 
And I have to tell you, what, what leads up to Wonderful Counselor is rich, but I've got to have something else to preach next week. So let's just focus specifically on Wonderful Counselor. When you start thinking about all of the topics of Isaiah, and you think about sin, and you think about God, and you think about his redemptive plan, and you think about salvation and Israel, and you start thinking about purpose and Old Testament, New Testament, I don't know about you, but it can cause a little bit of stress. We need a counselor, don't we? We need somebody who can guide us to understanding. Remember Acts 8 with Philip and the eunuch? He's reading from Isaiah 52 and 53, and Philip says, do you understand? And he says, how can I unless somebody guides me? We need a guide. And do you, do you know that I'm not your ultimate guide? The elders of this church are not your ultimate guide. Your small group leaders, the authors of the books that you're reading, the pastors that you listen to on podcasts, we're not the ultimate guide. We are under guides. We are, we are junior varsity guides following the guide of Christ, 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. I live in a house of females. Lots and lots of females. Even our dog is a female dog. And I have to tell you, I, I love them and I wouldn't trade it for the world, but I do not understand them. But thankfully, my best friend does. And I get to live with her till death do us part. And she constantly is a wonderful counselor. But there is an even greater wonderful counselor, and it's contained in these two words. The word wonderful, this is interesting. Wonderful requires God as its explanation. Would you write that down? The word wonderful requires God as its explanation. So if you're going to use the Hebrew term the way it was intended in Isaiah, when you say something's wonderful, then that means that is only can be explained by God, which if the Vikings make it to the Super Bowl, it will be wonderful. <laughs> wonderful requires God's as its explanation. And then counselor is not just advice but it's also the rightful ability to issue decrees. Isn't that awesome? This is somebody who's not just sitting in the background and in the shadows saying, hey, I think you should do this, and I think it'd be your, it's your benefit. No, 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 he also issues decrees. He is the king. He is the rightful one to counsel us, to issue decrees for our lives. And in the Hebrew, this is actually one name, wonderful counselor, wonder counselor, wonder of a counselor. So beloved, I know some of you have availed yourself of our counselors in soul care, and you know there is benefit to that. Others of you might have mentors in your life that you can go to when you have difficult circumstances. There, there is value in having counselors in our lives, but God has given to us the wonder counselor. So not just studying scripture to be able to understand it, but being able to process all of these extreme events in our lives and everything in between. We have the wonderful counselor, but how do we access him? There's really three ways. One is the word of God. That is the one that is undeniable. We can come to the word of God and we know God has spoken. I, I hear people talk about how God spoke to them. And, and what I want to say is I'm not here to debate your experience. What I can do on the authority of scripture is say, if God spoke to you, what did he say? And measure it against this. Isn't that awesome? 
Because, man, if we don't have this, if we don't have something to measure that against, then it could basically be your word against mine, and that's a mess. The first resource that allows us to be counseled by the wonder counselor is his word. Genesis to Revelation. But then second of all, the Holy Spirit. Do you you know this wonder counselor dwells in you if you are a follower of Jesus Christ? That's awesome. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. 1 Corinthians 3.16. The Jews had to go to the tabernacle. The Jews had to go to the temple. Only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies and be in the presence of God. But because of Christ, beloved, if you are a follower of him, the Holy Spirit actually dwells in you. That's awesome. And he speaks to us in agreement with his word. But he speaks to us also through the third resource that he gives us. And that is the gifted leadership of your local church. God speaks through them. That's why in Ephesians 4, Jesus said not only did he give individuals gifts, but he actually gave the local church gifts. And part of that gifting is the leadership of the local church. And there, there's qualifications for that, and there's accountability for that. There's 1 Timothy 3, there's Titus 1, there's character qualifications, there's theological qualifications. You must measure what I say and what the leadership says against the word. And if it doesn't match up, then we're wrong, the word is right. God gives the leadership of the church giftedness. And so God has given all three of these resources in your life and mine to be wonder counselors. And we desperately need that. So even in the extremes, God has not forgotten, but we must bend our expectations to his, and he will counsel us to understanding. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Friend, the wonder counselor is offered to you. But you must respond to the completed work of Christ to have access to him. You you must get to a place where you recognize that you have contributed to your extreme. By your sin nature, you have contributed to the extreme of you being an enemy of God. You must get to that place. And if you get to that place and that that place of sorrow and pain and hopelessness, you are now in a position to receive the ultimate hope, which is that God has not forgotten. That he has provided the Zerah, the offspring, that can defeat and will and has defeated Satan, but he can also defeat your sin nature. You simply must ask him to forgive your sins. You simply must trust and his completed work. You simply must surrender the throne of your life to King Jesus. If you haven't done that, would you do that right now? You can call out to him at your seats. You can surrender your life to Jesus Christ and receive the wonder counselor. And then we can give you direction on where to go from there to how to better understand and access the resources that God has given you. There will be people from the prayer team at the ends of the stage and they would love to talk with you after the service. Friend, if you have received the wonder counselor, are you listening to him? 
We can often contribute to the radio static that makes it difficult to hear his voice through our sin, through our laziness, through our buying into the Assyrias of this world and trusting in the world to be our our comfort and our strength. And so maybe this morning you've seen parallels with Israel to you. There's hope. The hope is that God has not forgotten. The hope is that as we bend our expectations to his, he will lead us to understanding. So friend, this is your opportunity as we close the service, as we have a time of singing and continued worship. Would you please move what you've learned into the living category? If there are changes that need to take place, would you commit them? If there is sin that you need to repent of, would you repent of it? If there is a a first time in your life where you need to surrender, would you do that this morning? Whatever the Holy Spirit is doing in your heart, be open to it and respond.